Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. Today I will be talking to Margie Robinson, who is an attorney with the Humane Society of the United States, and she'll be telling us about the latest chapter in the years-long effort to get all the chimpanzees formally held for research by the National Institutes of Health and other federal agencies into sanctuary. It seems unbelievable that NIH is still holding on to some of these chimpanzees in spite of a law being passed by Congress setting up sanctuaries and mandating that the chimps be taken there to live out their lives. But that is exactly where we are. Sometimes, in fact, so frequently, getting a statute passed to protect animals is only the first step of a very long effort to make sure that those legal changes actually take effect. Before we get to that interview, I'd just like to quickly ask for your support for our hen house, which is, of course, the not-for-profit that produces this podcast along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can support us, uh, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And you can join our flock for $100 a year or $10 a month. Or you can make whatever donation you can afford and are comfortable with. And we would really, really deeply appreciate that. And while you're at it, if you're not already a listener of Our Hen House, the other podcast that we produce, please check it out. There's a bunch of Great interviews over the past month. One uh, is Jasmine's inspiring conversation with Josh and Wendy Smith, who are the founders of Odd Man Inn Sanctuary. Another is my conversation with Kat and Scott Blaze about their efforts to provide sanctuary for abused elephants, starting with their extraordinary sanctuary in rural Brazil. Wow, what a story. And then there is my conversation with the always inspiring, always like bundle of energy, like I just love this woman, Gwenna Hunter, about her efforts to create a vegan food bank in a neighborhood in Los Angeles that is incredibly in need of healthy and compassionate food. Such an inspiration. So let's now, talking about inspirations, get to the interview. Margie Robinson is a staff attorney at the Humane Society of the United States and has taught an animal law seminar at George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School. Her current practice focuses on protecting wildlife, both in the wild and in captivity, including countering cruel trophy hunting practices, advocating for former research chimpanzees, and defending fur sales bans. She will be joining me right after this. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier online free publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. The United States Digest is published weekly as a collaborative effort with the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School. The Canadian Digest is published twice monthly with the support of the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. This digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the animal law field. Subscribing is like having a full-time lawyer researching and reporting to you on current legal developments related to animal protection. Features include updates by category and key terms, as well as links to background materials that will orient the reader into that specific issue. You can subscribe to the U.S. and Canadian Brooks Animal Law Digests at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast, Margie. Thanks, Marianne. I'm excited to be here. I am really excited to have you. I feel like you're going to get us up to date on a saga that's been going on for 
an unbelievable amount of time. I think we need to start by delving into some history as background for this current dispute, though, because this is such a long, tortured saga, we're going to have to abbreviate some of that history or we'll be here all day. Can you just give us a little background, maybe starting with the history of research on chimpanzees prior to the Chimps Act, which is the law that we're going to be talking about? Sure, absolutely. So the United States and the United States government and NIH in particular bred hundreds of chimpanzees to be used in biomedical experiments for research on things like HIV and hepatitis, and then realized that you know it had to do something with these animals when they were no longer needed for research because they live for a very long time, you know, well into their 50s, sometimes even longer than that. Congress looked at what it was going to do with these animals when they were no longer needed for research and passed in 2000 a law called the Chimpanzee Health Improvement Maintenance and Protection Act, the CHIMP Act, to deal with the issue of what's going to happen with these chimps when they're no longer needed for for research. And so Congress recognized in passing the CHIMP Act that it had a moral obligation to these animals, that it had to provide for their lifetime care. And it determined that that couldn't be done in the labs and that the best place for these animals to go was sanctuary. The CHIMP Act creates and funds a federal sanctuary for the retirement of federal chimpanzees when they're no longer needed in research. It's just an extraordinary development, actually, even though they are chimpanzees. And and now we've come to accept that chimpanzees are these extraordinary animals. I'm sure before the Chimps Act was was passed, there were many, many people doing research on chimpanzees who never blinked at the idea that, well, just like all other animals in research, we'll just kill them when we're done. I'm just worried about supporting them. So I think it's worth you know noting that the Chimps Act was extraordinary, even though it's only chimpanzees, only this very, very special animal. And it didn't end the research, but we'll get to that story next. I guess we should probably mention the end of split listing, which really had a lot to do with how things changed, even more. When the Chimps Act was passed, it didn't say chimps couldn't be used in research. It just said that once we're done with them, we have to take care of them. What was the end of split listing and how did it change things? Yeah. So so as you noted, Marianne, the Chimp Act didn't end invasive research on chimps. It was still permissible and left it to NIH to decide whether or not a chimpanzee was needed for research, whether or not the animal was surplus under the language of the act. And so the the way that invasive research could continue on chimps, because chimps were listed under the Endangered Species Act for a number of years. They were listed as endangered in the wild, but listed as threatened in captivity when they were in captivity in the United States. And so the Endangered Species Act prohibition that doesn't allow the the taking of a listed animal and that that taking can include harm or harassing the animal, which invasive research would do. That taking prohibition under the Endangered Species Act didn't apply to animals who were kept in captivity. And so research on these animals could continue, even though wild chimpanzees were listed as endangered and the take prohibition applied to them. So Humane Society of the United States, the organization that I work for, petitioned the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to and that split listing and list all chimpanzees, whether they were in captivity or the wild, as endangered under the Endangered Species Act. And in doing so, the take prohibitions, the prohibition against harming and harassing the animals would apply if they were listed in captivity. And so we were successful in that. In 2015, the Fish and Wildlife Service ended the split listing of chimpanzees. And as a result, chimpanzees 
couldn't be used in invasive research. They couldn't be harmed or harassed unless there was a permit issued under one of the narrow exceptions under the Endangered Species Act and and no permits have, have been issued. So it effectively ended the invasive research on chimps. And I should also add that HSUS, Humane Society of the United States, and other animal protection groups were also pushing on NIH as well to end the practice of using chimps in research because the United States was the last holdout. Every other country that stopped by 2009 and and the U.S. was continuing. And so animal protection groups were pushing from both sides, pushing on the split listing that effectively allowed this to occur, but also pushing NIH, you know, and noting that the chimpanzees were special, exceptional creatures that cannot be used in this type of research. And of course, we don't think animal research is appropriate in other circumstances as well, but chimpanzees are, are, are a special case here for sure. There are additional arguments that can be made for chimpanzees that can't be made for other animals. So we probably agree that plenty of good arguments can be made regarding other animals as well. But yeah, it was it was an extraordinary development. And I assume it, it meant that this idea that we're going to move them to sanctuary once they're no longer needed in research just became a much bigger thing after it was decided or it was legally mandated that, well, well, they can't be used in at least in invasive research. And so there's going to be a whole lot more chimpanzees going to sanctuary. So how has the development of sanctuaries for these chimpanzees gone? I assume from the time it was passed, we have needed more and more space. And aside from the chimpanzees who are the subject of this case, so we'll get to in a minute, are, are they all in sanctuary now other than these or, or some who are still waiting for sanctuaries to be expanded? So my understanding is that this point, NIH has moved all the, the chimps that it thinks are movable, that it thinks can be moved to sanctuary. There are chimps remaining in labs, in a few labs, including Alamogordo Primate Facility, which is the, the facility and the chimpanzees that are at issue in our lawsuit. But there are, I think, about 100 federal chimps outside of sanctuary at this point. Does NIH take the position that none of them can be moved to sanctuary, or are they still just waiting for a space? NIH takes the position that they can't be moved to sanctuary because okay. of, you know, what the agency identifies as perceived risks in transfer, which, of course, we don't agree with. We'll be getting into all of that. I didn't realize there were additional ones to the ones that we're talking about here. So just for a moment, just to paint the picture, can you tell us what life is like at the sanctuary that's at issue here, Chimpaven? Yeah, so Chimp Haven is the the sole nonprofit that operates the federal sanctuary. So it's a federal sanctuary in Keithville, Louisiana. It's, you know, home to, I think, about 300 chimpanzees at this point, many, but not all of them, former federal research chimps. And it's just a top-notch facility. It provides the highest standard of physical and psychological care for these animals who have been through so much. Its mission is entirely focused on protecting these animals and and doing what's best for these animals. And it provides complex social groups for them to live in and a natural and expansive environment for for them to spend their days. How long do chimps live anyway? And how old are they? So how much time are we talking about for putting them in sanctuary for the rest of their lives? It varies. Some of the chimps are in their mid thirties. Some of them are, you know, older than that in their their fifties. But certainly, many of these animals could live for another decade or more at sanctuary because chimps live well into their fifties and and sometimes into their sixties. 
let's get to the the chimpsit issue here and where they're living. And an NIH, as you mentioned, decided they could not be moved to sanctuary, even if it was available. So tell us a little bit about their living conditions, and then we'll get into what they are stating as the reason for their ineligibility to move to sanctuary. Yeah. So when Congress passed the CHIMP Act, Congress recognized that sanctuary was the best place to retire these animals, that they would receive the highest quality of care there and that they would have the most, you know, appropriate social in living environments at sanctuary. And so a laboratory cannot provide the the same standard of care for these animals. And I think it's important to note that the facility the animals are, are at, the Alamogordo Primate Facility, is on a U.S. Air Force base. It is the facility in the care of the chimps is maintained through a contract with a third party, Charles River Laboratories, that's business model is to breed animals for for use and research. And so that's, you know, a very different approach to thinking about how animals should be used than Chimp Haven that's focused very much on providing the highest level of care possible for chimpanzees and has a chimpanzee centric mission. Also, the, the the social groupings at the facility at APF, Alamogordo Primate Facility, are not as complex. The chimps are kept in single-sex groups. They're not as large. So it's the opportunities at Chimp Haven for more complex social groupings and more natural social groupings because chimpanzees in the wild live in multi-male, multi-female groups. It, it's just a better fit and allows them to engage in, in more natural species-specific behavior. One thing that struck me that was in your papers was that it's just going to keep getting worse and worse if they're in these small groups, like they're going to start dying and then the groups are going to get smaller and smaller until somebody's living alone. So it really does seem like a a very unsatisfactory life. I mean, they're not in individual cages the way they used to be. I've been doing this for so long that, you know, I remember when chimps were at the Colston facility being used to test oven cleaner. I mean, the the history is horrifying, so it's not as bad as that, but it's sounds, compared to the lifestyle they would have at the sanctuary, it certainly sounds very, very limited. I don't think I noticed in your papers that it's run by Charles River. <laughs> I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. Those are notorious words. They have been supplying animals for everybody for a very long time. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. Let me get back to thinking about this. They decided, NIH decided, that these chimps, in spite of the fact that the living conditions are obviously better at the sanctuary, cannot be moved, even if the sanctuary had space. They kept building more space and getting more chimps. But but even if there had been space, they said that they were ineligible. What were their stated reasons for that ineligibility? Yeah, that's right. So NIH determined it wouldn't move any of these animals, regardless of of whether or not there was space available at the sanctuary for them. And, you know, I should note that the planned order was to move the the chimpanzees at this facility, Alamogordo Primate Facility, and then to move on to the other facilities. So when the lawsuit was brought, there was space and and at, at Chimp Haven and these animals would have been the next in line to go if the agency hadn't made its decision. But The agency maintains that it won't move these animals because they suffer from chronic health conditions like heart disease and diabetes and hypertension. And and these conditions are common in in former research jumps because they're former lab animals who are, you know, sedentary in many parts of their day and many, many times of the day. And so the agency just said it wasn't going to to move these animals. I think it's important to note the decision not to move the animals was spurred by the veterinarian at the 
facility that the third party contractor that operates the facility, you know, in our view, there's a conflict of interest there because the contractor has an interest in maintaining the government contract to keep the animals at the facility. And then although the agency NIH did assemble a panel of veterinarians to review the lab that's recommendation and make the final determination. They did that based on files provided by the lab. The panel never visited the chimps in person or assessed them in person. It was just on the records provided by the lab. You know, in our view, the agency overestimated the risks of transfer and didn't think about the concrete and very real benefits of moving these animals to sanctuary, which Congress recognized when it passed the chimp act. That's why it created the sanctuary, because it felt they're determined that the best standard of care would be provided at a sanctuary and not in a laboratory environment. Yeah, you brought it up. So let's go into it a little bit more. You're not directly making this allegation, but certainly it's something that hangs over this whole decision. And that's like the standard process of following the money. How much money does this facility make out of taking care of these chimpanzees? And what is the difference between that and what it would cost the government if they were sent to sanctuary? Yeah, so the cost of care is pretty significantly different to NIH between what it costs the agency to keep the chimps at the facility compared to what it would cost at the lab. And part of that is the cost sharing scheme that the Chimp Act creates. The Chimp Act requires Chimp Haven, the the nonprofit that's operating the sanctuary, to cover 10% of the costs of establishing the system and then 25% of the costs of operating the system. And then there's also just an economy of scale when you have, you know, more chimpanzees living in an environment, a single sanctuary rather than than scattered across labs across the United States. But in terms of the numbers there, under NIH's most recent accounting, it costs the agency about $119 a day per chimp to maintain the chimps at at the facility at APF compared to about $49 per chimp per day at Chimp Haven. So about two and a half times more to keep them at the lab as compared to the sanctuary. Yeah, no, there does seem to be something going on here. I mean, there's certainly a vested interest, even if there's no way of establishing that that's the only reason that they're being kept there. All right, let's talk a little bit about the danger because NIH's decision had a lot to do with that it would be so dangerous to move them. What is the transport like? I mean, it just seems like a lot of people have a lot of illnesses. It doesn't mean they can't get in a vehicle and go to another state. Like, I mean, off the top of my head, it doesn't seem that dangerous. Can you talk a little bit about it? And they're currently in New Mexico, Mexico. is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So the process, you know, NIH has been doing this for years, working with Chimp Haven in the, the labs to get the animals to sanctuary. My understanding is that they're put on a truck in cages and that they are moved across the country. Also, you know, Chimp Haven and, and, and NIH take steps to reduce the risk. For example, they won't move animals during the summer because it's hotter then. And so there's a greater risk of, of complications associated with, with transport and putting the animals under anesthesia to move them. Though we think that there could be steps taken and that animals don't have to be anesthetized to be moved across the country. We told the agency that in comments we provided when it announced that it was contemplating keeping some chimps in labs. But I think the important thing to, to keep in mind is that NIH has moved chimps to sanctuary, including six chimps who are sicker and older, you know, without incident. It's our view that you just can't base the risk of transfer, shouldn't be 
a basis to foreclose the very concrete and real benefits of, of sanctuary. And again, we think the agencies overestimated the risks associated with transport. And I think it's also worth noting that the agency's not just looking at the risks associated with the transportation process, but the agency argues that there are risks beyond that process as well and in, in integrating chimps into social groups and, and getting them settled at the sanctuary. And again, you know, we think Congress assessed those risks and determined that all these chimps should go to sanctuary because that's the best place for them. Well, does the sanctuary have the have the capacity to care for the medical issues? You said they were mostly fairly common. I would assume yeah. that some of the other chimps who were there also have diabetes and and some heart issues. That's right. The The sanctuary chimp haven has the capacity to provide individualized and specialized care for chimpanzees with chronic health conditions and has been doing so for other chimpanzees who have similar health issues. And not to bend over backwards, like for the for the sanctuary, but it's got to be a huge job. Just, you know, when I think of what it's like to integrate a new cat into the household, I can imagine integrating these very complex who are of a certain age with the, you know, personalities is a big job and that they must have done it a lot to make sure that they are in groups that are compatible. That seems to be what they do. Yeah, that's that. I mean, when they they know new chimps are coming to the sanctuary, they'd spend a lot of time planning and preparing and thinking about how to integrate chimps into new groups and which groups would be the best fit for the animals coming in. So absolutely, that's something that Chimp Haven has done and certainly has the the ability to do and, and puts a lot of thought into. I'm kind of curious, like, I, obviously you're here, so we're talking about a lawsuit, but was that a last resort? Was there a lot of back and forth about the wisdom of this decision before you decided to file suit? There was. The agency announced in 2018 that it was, con- in early 2018, that it was contemplating the possibility of keeping some chimps in labs rather than moving them to sanctuary. And so when the agency made that announcement, a Humane Society of the United States and other groups wrote to NIH and expressed their concern and expressed the view that the agency had a moral and legal obligation under the CHIMP Act to move these animals to sanctuary and that the supposed risks that the agency had identified shouldn't foreclose moving these animals to sanctuary. There's also a public comment process later in the process and and many groups weighed in at that point as well. After we saw sort of the first application of the protocol that the agency put in place to decide whether or not it was going to move chimps to labs, which is the the chimpanzees at issue here at the Alamogordo Primate Facility, when the agency issued that decision with respect to those chimps, it, again, Humane Study of the United States and other groups pushed the agency to reevaluate that decision. There's been pushback from congressional offices as well to the agency in viewing the decision as, as a circumvention of its legal obligations under the CHIMP Act. So there certainly has been multiple efforts before this litigation to, to try to get the agency to change course. But obviously they were unsuccessful. So let's talk about the lawsuit. First of all, can you just explain who the who the plaintiffs are? And we didn't really arrange to talk about the initial motion to dismiss, which had to do with standing. But, you know, it's an animal law case, so you always want to talk about standing a little bit. So you can tell us who the plaintiffs are and who has standing and why. There are six plaintiffs in this lawsuit, three organizational plaintiffs, Humane Society of the United States, Animal Protection of New Mexico, and Humane Society Legislative Fund. And then there are, and all three of those groups have worked for years to end invasive testing on chimps and 
get chimpanzees from labs to sanctuary once they're not being used in research. And then there are three individual plaintiffs. Each of those individual plaintiffs worked at a facility. Two of them worked at Alamogordo Primate Facility when it was called something else. One of them worked at a different lab, but worked with chimpanzees who were later moved to, to APF. And so all three of those individual plaintiffs worked in positions where they either cared for the chimpanzees, some of the chimpanzees at issue in this case, or interacted with them on a regular basis. They're all committed chimp advocates. They've fought for these animals for years since since leaving those positions, have very deep and personal connections to the animals, and I think are, you know, really troubled and haunted by knowing that some of these animals remain at a lab rather than being retired to sanctuary. In terms of of standing, we did have motion, the government did move to dismiss, arguing that we didn't have standing either for the organizational plaintiffs or the individual plaintiffs. There was motions to dismiss briefing on that, and the court determined that both the organizational plaintiffs and the individual plaintiffs had standing. There wasn't a written order. The judge ruled from the bench at a hearing on that issue. But our arguments with respect to the organization standing was under what's called a havens theory for for the case that sort of establishes this concept that an organization can have standing if in its own right if the challenged action in the lawsuit frustrates the organization's mission and cause causes a diversion or caused a diversion of the organization's resources and so here in this case we have three organizational plaintiffs that have advocated for chimpanzees for years and specifically federal chimpanzees to get to end invasive research on chimps and to get them moved from labs to sanctuary. Both HSUS and Animal Protection New Mexico advocated for the CHIMP Act when it was originally passed. Human Society Legislative Fund wasn't in existence then, but then subsequently advocated for amendments to the, the CHIMP Act. So these groups have been involved in these issues for a long time. And so our point was this frustrates the organization's missions. They clearly have a demonstrated interest and goal of getting these chimps from labs to sanctuary. The decision circumvents that. And so these organizational plaintiffs were required to divert resources to try to counteract the agency's decision. So they did things like hire experts to assess the soundness of the decision. They engaged in some of the activities that we talked about a few minutes ago and trying to get the agency to change course. Humane Society of the United States and Humane Society Legislative Fund collected over 155,000 signatures asking NIH to reassess its decision to keep these chimps at the facility. And so that diversion of resources came at the expense of other mission-critical work because the organizations were engaging in these activities that necessarily came at the expense of other work. And so there was a recent case in the Fourth Circuit, our cases in the District of Maryland, and there was a recent Fourth Circuit opinion in 2021 from a case that PETA brought against a roadside zoo challenging their treatment of animals in violation, alleging that it violated the Endangered Species Act. The court found under similar allegations in that PETA case that PETA had standing. And so the judge looked at that precedent and, and found it relevant in, in, in establishing the organizational plaintiff standing here. And with respect to with respect to the individual plaintiffs, the Fourth Circuit, again, we're in the District of Maryland, has made clear that an aesthetic interest in the observation of animals is a legally protected interest for the purpose of standing. And NIH's decision to keep these chimps at the lab 
invades the individual plaintiff's aesthetic interest in the observation of animals in a real non-speculative and personal manner. And that's because the chimps right now are housed on a secure Air Force base where the public isn't able to access the animals or and gets very limited information about the animals and the conditions they're being kept in. Whereas if the chimps were moved to sanctuary, the, the only sanctuary that they can be moved to under the act, Chimp Haven, Chimp Haven provides opportunities for the public to visit. And they also provide videos and pictures and other information about the chimps. And so our individual plaintiff's aesthetic interests in reconnecting and getting information about the chimpanzees at issue in, in this case is is hindered by the decision. And the court determined based on our arguments that the individual plaintiff said standing as well. That was a great, great summary. And just for somebody who's who's been involved in this for a long time, for those of you who haven't, the development of standing in this area really has changed so much. And the fact that the court just decided this from the bench, <laughs> just that it was, you know, just the the law seemed very clear to the court is is just really a miraculous development. And I can imagine in the past, this case might have never gotten into court because the standing rules were so outlandish. All right. The standing arguments were a little complex. On the other hand, there are only two causes of action, both under the Administrative Procedure Act. And actually, only one is actually ended up being truly relevant. So can you just briefly describe what the Administrative Procedure Act does and and what these two causes of action allow you to do when you are aggrieved by the action of an administrative agency? The CHIMP Act itself doesn't provide a cause of action for the plaintiffs to to sue the government, even though we allege and the court agreed with us that what the agency did was in violation of the CHIMP Act. There's not a, a separate cause of action in the CHIMP Act, but the Administrative Procedure Act does provide a cause of action and waives the federal government's sovereign immunity and allows plaintiffs to challenge agency actions in certain circumstances, including if they're arbitrary and capricious or if the, uh, the the action being challenged is otherwise not in accordance with law. And so we brought two claims under the Administrative Procedure Act, the APA. The first was that the government is mandated by the CHIMP Act to transfer these chimpanzees and NIH in deciding not to move the animals to sanctuary, exercise discretion that it just doesn't have under the CHIMP Act. And so that decision was not in accordance with law and therefore violated the CHIMP Act and the Administrative Procedure Act. The second claim was an arbitrary and capricious claim. So that claim argues that NIH's decision to keep the chimps at the lab is arbitrary and capricious under the APA because NIH's decision-making was faulty. You know, we allege that NIH's assessment of individual chimpanzees' health status and transfer risk was erroneous and incomplete, that the agency ignored key considerations and evidence before it, and that the decision contradicted NIH's own policies and and past precedents. And so those were the, the two claims at issue. But as you noted, given sort of the posture of the case after the motion to dismiss briefing, where the government had also moved to dismiss for failure to state a claim under rule federal rule of civil procedure 12 men so the government had started to argue that our interpretation of the chimp act wasn't a permissible interpretation of the chimp act and so the judge at that hearing on the motion to dismiss asked for more information about the chimp act interpretation and 
the parties proposed that we just move to summary judgment briefing on that question rather than having to to brief it twice and a motion to dismiss and then again in summary judgment briefing. Oh, that makes sense. That's why it's on summary judgment. And but you know, there was a motion on a cross motion for summary judgment. There doesn't seem to be any question that there are no questions of fact at issue. So if I understand correctly, as we said, the court's decision was under the first cause of action, the ineligibility decision that these particular chimpanzees were not eligible for transfer was just not in accordance with law. Yeah, and that's pretty unusual. Usually you do get into an arbitrary, you know, that the agency has some discretion and then they use their discretion arbitrarily and capriciously. But this is just like the, the court is like, no, the, the law says this and they didn't do it. What are the specific provisions of the CHIMP Act that are at issue here that the court just said it's clear that they had to do it? They didn't do it. So there's two provisions of the CHIMP Act that are at issue. The, the first provision, subsection A, generally creates, requires NIH to create and operate a sanctuary system to provide for the lifetime care of federal chimpanzees who are no longer needed for research. So again, surplus chimpanzees is what you might hear me refer to those animals as because that's what they're called under the chimpanzee, right, which just means... It's a legal term. It's right, not right. our opinion. <laughs> right. Surplus chimpanzees just mean a chimpanzee who's been designated by NIH is a federal chimpanzee who's been designated by NIH is no longer needed for research purposes. And at this point, all federal chimpanzees are surplus chimpanzees because invasive research on chimps has ended. So that subsection A creates the sanctuary system and directs NIH to operate that system in compliance with the other requirements of the, the CHIMP Act. And then subsection C of the, of the CHIMP Act states that all surplus chimpanzees shall be accepted into the sanctuary system and there was an ellipsis there. It's all surplus chimpanzees. Ellipses shall be accepted into the sanctuary system. And the court looked at that language and said, you know, all means all. Shall means shall. It's a, a mandatory duty impervious to discretion and read that directive to coupled with the directive to NIH to create and operate the sanctuary system in, in subsection A, read those two subsections to mandate the transfer of surplus chimpanzees, including the chimpanzees at APF at Alamogordo Primate Facility to the sanctuary. And the court's ruling was supported by the fact, and, and we argued this in the briefing and the, the court agreed with us, by the fact that the CHIMP Act gives NIH discretion to not accept non-surplus chimpanzees. So there's language in the CHIMP Act where the agency has clear discretion on the issue of whether or not to accept animals, but only those animals who are non-federal chimps, non-surplus chimpanzees. So if they're coming, you know, if they're a former pet, someone's former pet, or if they're chimpanzees coming from a private rather than a government facility, then the agency can accept those animals, but it doesn't have to. And the court looked at the contrast between the mandatory language with respect to uh, surplus chimpanzees, federal chimpanzees, and the discretionary language and, and determine that provided further evidence. And there was also evidence in the legislative history that we pointed to. And I think here it's important to sort of contextualize the CHIMP Act and where we were at the time that the law was passed. At that point, as we talked about earlier, invasive research on chimps was still legal. And so Congress expected that the chimps who would be going to sanctuary would be the animals who were no longer appropriate for use in research. And there's language in the Senate report that accompanied the Senate version of the CHIMP Act, where Congress says, you know, chimps will only enter the sanctuary system if 
they're no longer appropriate for use in research, for example, due to advanced age or infections. And so we argued and the court agreed with us that that signaled that Congress understood older and sicker animals would be the animals going to sanctuary because they would be the animals not appropriate for use in research. It's just not a basis. Chronic health conditions are not a basis to keep animals in labs. That makes total sense. These are the animals for whom the whole idea was originally developed. The yeah, animals exactly. who are too old and sick to be used in research. Honestly, it all seems pretty clear. This isn't like a complex question of statutory interpretation. It's basically, is the language ambiguous, which is the first question you ask in statutory interpretation? The court said, no, it's not. Tell us about what their arguments are and what their position is. And I can think of of one that, you know, I, I think would pop into most people's head. Maybe these chimpanzees should be eligible, but it would be possible that if you have a really ill, dying chimpanzee, you would not want to take them to sanctuary. You can imagine the exception. I think that was one of the government's arguments. Can you tell us if if I'm right <laughs> and what other arguments they made that the statute didn't mean what the statute said? You're right. They did argue that there could be circumstances where it, it wouldn't be appropriate to move a chimpanzee who was dying moribund. And we agreed with that. You know, our view is that if a chimp is truly moribund, such that they're at the end of life, moving them to sanctuary is is going to be impossible. And so they don't have to be moved because you just can't affect the purpose of the act. You can't get these animals to sanctuary if they're going to die in transit or immediately thereafter. But I think it's important to note that in our view, that situation, you know, we're not conceding that any of these animals fall into that category. And our position is that it is very unlikely that that any chimpanzees would fall into that category because the facility APF's policy is to euthanize animals before they become that sick. And so we just think practically that situation is un- is unlikely to arise. A rare outlier circumstance where it would be impossible to move a chimp shouldn't foreclose the agency's compliance with the law. This isn't the reason that the agency was withholding these chimps. The agency didn't say these chimps were at death's door. Rather, they said they couldn't be moved because of chronic conditions like heart disease and diabetes, which again are common in, in former research chimps. Yeah, if I understand, their their position was was basically, since there might be a situation which in which it will be impossible to comply. That means we have discretion. That's, and the whole thing is just discretionary. I, when you first hear that, I was like, oh, yeah, I can see that. But it doesn't actually make any sense. But the government also argued that they brought the Animal Welfare Act into it, I believe, and argued that there are provisions of the Animal Welfare Act that would prohibit the transfers. Can you talk about that argument? Yeah. So NIH couldn't find any language in the, the CHIMP Act that gave it the discretion that it purported to exercise. And so it looked to external sources. It looked to regulations promulgated under the Animal Welfare Act to try to to justify its conduct. And so the agency pointed to two regulations that are have been promulgated under that act. One regulation requires a licensed veterinarian to sign a health certificate before a non-human primate is transported from a research facility. And that certificate needs to state that the animal appeared to be free of any infectious disease or physical abnormality, which would endanger the animal or other animals or endanger public health. And that's 9 CFR section 2.38H. The language in the regulation doesn't require the vet to speak with certainty regarding the risk 
to the animal or to forecast the risk caused by transit, let alone consider risks beyond the transport process. And as I mentioned earlier, NIH was looking at far down the line as to what would happen and and the perceived risk once the animal was moved to sanctuary. So well outside of the bounds of, of the language and that regulation. And we also argued that NIH's strict reading of that regulation would preclude the transfer of many surplus chimpanzees, again, because they often suffer from health conditions, chronic health conditions. And even in cases where a chimp is totally healthy, there's risks associated with moving the animal. And so just taking such a strict view of the regulation, particularly when set against a congressional mandate to move these animals to sanctuary in a later enacted and more specific law, these regulations really just could be read in harmony to allow the transfer of of the animals in this particular circumstance where we're talking about moving a surplus chimpanzee from the lab to sanctuary. And the court held that there's no requirement in the regulation that a veterinarian assess a chimpanzee's overall health prior to transport and agreed with us that the, the regulation could be harmonized with the language of the CHIMP Act. The other regulation that NIH pointed to, 9 CFR section 3.90C, that regulation generally prohibits the transport of a primate if the animal is obviously ill, injured, or in physical distress, but a primate can be transported to receive veterinary care for the condition. And so our point was, again, you've got to read this regulation against the backdrop of the later enacted and more specific CHIMP Act, which reflects a congressional determination on what is in the best welfare interests of these animals. The sanctuary was provided was created to provide these animals with the highest standard of care, including the highest level of veterinary care, so they can be moved under that exception. And the court agreed with us there as well, noting that the exception in that regulation appeared to be implicated by transferring surplus chimpanzees to sanctuary. And finally, NIH was just pointing to to regulations under the Chimp Act. So even if they couldn't be harmonized, and we argued and the court agreed that they could be harmonized with the CHIMP Act, but even if they couldn't be harmonized, an administrative regulation cannot trump a congressional mandate. And there was nothing in the CHIMP Act that suggested Congress anticipated these Animal Welfare Act regulations being a trump card that allowed the agency to maintain chimps at a lab. Yeah, even if they had been totally clear that that they applied, they still obviously wouldn't apply. (laughs) Yeah. That's a weak argument. Just to cover the all bases, they also argue that their obligations under the CHIMP Act were modified in a subsequent report in Congress, I believe. Can you just discuss that argument as well? Yeah. So there's language in the CHIMP Act. So the CHIMP Act requires NIH to promulgate regulations regarding the standard of standard of care at, at CHIMP Haven at the federal sanctuary. And so the CHIMP Act directs NIH to consider this National Research Council's report, which I believe is from 1997, which was looking at the issue of, okay, we've got all these chimpanzees, what are we going to do with them? What are our options? And so the court directed the agency to consider that report in promulgating regulations regarding the standard of care at the sanctuary. And so our argument was, look, Section subsection C of the act, which is the language I read earlier about all chimpanzees shall be accepted into the sanctuary system, all surplus chimpanzees shall be accepted into the sanctuary system. That's a clear mandate under the act. Uh, subsection D, which is the 
subsection of the act that gave the agency the authority to promulgate regulations regarding the standards of care, the CHIMP Act. But it's a different thing. We're talking about acceptance into the sanctuary system, and then we're talking about standards of care once the animals get there. And the court agreed with us that those are two distinct parts of the, the CHIMP Act and address different issues. And there were some other factual and legal problems with the the government's arguments there that we argued in briefing, but the court didn't reach in the, in the decision. Yeah, let's talk about that decision. What did the court decide? And there are, there are aspects of the decision I don't fully understand regarding remedy. So can can you just tell us what the court decided in your favor? And then what were the issues about remedy? Yeah, so the court decided in our favor regarding the interpretation of the CHIMP Act. The judge agreed with us that the CHIMP Act mandates the transfer of surplus chimpanzees, including the chimpanzees at APF, to sanctuary. And she determined that NIH didn't have discretion with respect to the acceptance of surplus chimpanzees into the sanctuary system. So she ruled for us on the legal arguments that we made, but she wanted further information from the parties regarding the appropriate remedy. And so we provided another filing to the court on that and had a hearing recently on that issue. That was the joint status report? That's right. A joint status report is just you get together with the lawyers on the other side and inform the court of some background information? That's right. So a joint status report is the the parties presenting a status report together to the court about what's going on in the case. And so sometimes, you know, I've had other cases where I filed joint status reports with the opposing party of the government, and we've been able to jointly present where we think the case is to the judge. Here, we had our position as to what the appropriate remedy was, and, and NIH had a different position. So we filed a joint status report, but each provided our own positions in that report. What were those positions and how did the court respond to the joint status report? Our position is that that the proper course is to vacate the decision, the ineligibility decision, as we called it in the briefing and the court called it in its ruling, and remand the matter back to the agency to take action consistent with the summary judgment ruling and, and a remedies order from the court. We also asked that the court direct NIH to transfer the chimpanzees at APF to sanctuary as space becomes available there, either through expansion of the facility or through natural attrition as, as chimpanzees pass away at the, the sanctuary, and then asking the, the courts to maintain jurisdiction while that, those transfers are occurring and to require regular reporting from the agency. NIH took the view in that filing that, as I understand it, that it was going to reassess the chimps and decide whether or not to move them again. So leaving it open for the agency to essentially have a redo of its decision and decide that these chimps aren't eligible to be transferred to sanctuary or otherwise evade its statutory duty to to transfer these animals to sanctuary. So what happens if the court just vacated the ineligibility order? and remands the matter to NIH, like they would just get to do it over? You need an order telling the NIH what it has to do, right? That was our concern, yeah, that the agency would effectively redo the same decision, evade its statutory duty, you know, not acting what we view as in compliance with the the court's order regarding the summary judgment ruling. So our position was that this is a point where the agency doesn't have discretion on remand. You know, there's some Administrative Procedure Act cases where 
an agency could violate the law. The court could find the agency violated the law. It could send the matter back to the agency and the agency could reach the same outcome lawfully the second time around. So I'm thinking of cases where the agency's decision-making was faulty. Perhaps it didn't consider a factor that it should have considered or it didn't explain itself well enough. The court could identify a legal error and send it back to the agency and the agency could consider that factor or it could better explain its decision, but still ultimately reach the same outcome. Here, though, the agency doesn't have discretion to exercise on remand because the CHIMP Act mandates the transfer of these animals to sanctuary and doesn't afford NIH discretion with respect to the acceptance of these animals into the sanctuary system. We think it's it's totally proper and, and necessary for the court to provide direction to NIH regarding right. its legal obligations on remand here. And there's case law supporting that, supporting our position. I mean, I can see the court, which, you know, has done a really good job in a lot of ways, really being worried, like maybe one of these chimpanzees, you know, the same thought that came to me really might die. And, you know, I don't want to order them transferred. But but I guess what you're saying is that if that's the case, NIH could come to the court and say, make a decision. You know, it, it's up to the court whether this chimpanzee should be transferred. It's not within our discretion. We have made the decision that it shouldn't. And you would have to bring an action to change that. It doesn't mean they have to do that, but it's just not within their discretion to make the decision. Is that right? Did that make any sense? <laughs> our position is that if, and again, we don't think that situation is likely to occur because we, our view is that. Right. It's just hard to believe it's not the worry at the back of somebody's mind. But the the agency, if that was the case, could seek relief from yeah. the court's order to transfer the, that particular yeah. animal. Yeah. The court wants additional briefing, correct? And and what is that about? Well, that's right. So so we did get an order after the hearing and the judge direct, you know, vacated, did vacate and remand the matter to NIH, but she also directed them to comply with the CHIMP Act's requirement that all surplus chimpanzees shall be accepted into the sanctuary system in accordance with the summary judgment ruling. And that summary judgment ruling, as we've talked about, determined that the CHIMP Act mandates transfer of these animals to sanctuary. So, you know, our view is that the agency should start making plans to to start transferring these animals as soon as practicable under under the court's order. But she did ask for additional briefing regarding whether or not the agency or whether or not it's permissible for the court to direct the agency to transfer the chimpanzees to Chimp Haven as space becomes available, whether that's permissible under the Administrative Procedure Act. And, you know, we certainly think it is for the reasons that I just mentioned that the agency lacks discretion here. And the concern is that if the court doesn't provide direction to the agency that it could and run the requirements of the CHIMP Act and the court's summary judgment ruling. And so further explicit direction to the agency is appropriate here. It seems kind of obvious that if the court has decided that the agency must do this, that the court has the power to tell the agency it must do this. Yeah. And I think the court has, right? It's told the agency to comply with the CHIMP Act and its summary judgment ruling. But certainly we think it would be appropriate for the court to also tell the agency to, to transfer these animals as space becomes available. Okay, once you once you do this additional briefing and the court makes its decision, and is it going to be appealable? Is is this going to go on and on and on? Is this the rest of your life, Margie? 
<laughs> it, it could be. I mean, it, I, I can't forecast what the agency will do. That's a decision for the agency to make regarding the, the the court's ruling. And if our requested relief is it's entered, that's the agency's decision as to whether or not to appeal. So, you know, it, it's certainly possible that that there could be an appeal. I can't say how likely that is or not. I work for plaintiffs and not defendants. <laughs> do you have a theory as to why the NIH is taking such a stand here? Or one that you that you can share? You know, I think that the agency has looked at this and thinks that its vets have assessed this decision and stands stands by its assessment. But again, the plaintiffs in this matter see a lot of flaws in the agency's decision making here. The agency, as I said, this whole thing was spurred by the recommendation of the vet at the lab, NIH adopted that recommendation wholesale. You know, it didn't determine that any of these chimps could be moved after the vet made that initial recommendation. Then it did so without going to the facility. It did so based on records that it received from the lab. And it did so without assessing the very real and concrete benefits identified by Congress in transferring these animals to sanctuary. And again, we think that the agency overestimated the risks of transfer here. I find it a bit mystifying, but you know, I frequently do. All right. I think that that covers where we are in the case, unless I've left something out. Even so, I just want to clarify, because this is something I tend to forget about too. This isn't all the chimpanzees in, in the country. There are still chimpanzees who are privately owned. Certainly invasive research, that covers all the chimpanzees in the country, that, that decision, I believe. But there are still chimpanzees out there, right? It, this doesn't send them all to sanctuary. Right. So, I mean, the the decision, the CHIMP Act is specific to federal chimpanzees, to chimpanzees who that are owned by the government or reused in federally supported research. So, the CHIMP Act applies to federal chimpanzees. So, there are are other chimps. I don't know as many details about the number of chimpanzees in, in private labs as I do about federal chimps, but certainly that's been another piece of this that the organization I work for and other organizations have been working on is getting chimpanzees out of private labs and into sanctuary after invasive research ended. Invasive research has been has been ended, but there's there are other kinds of research, behavioral research and psychological research that still could be going on. Yeah. And I I mean it would have to be within the parameters of of the Endangered Species Act. So we right. not be permitted right. to harm or harass the animals without an ESA permit. And, you know, we're not aware of any of those permits being issued. So it would be more limited on species. And, and my background is actually in primate behavior. So there's certainly plenty of forms, I think, of behavioral research that can be non-invasive and just sort of sitting in the background and watching animals. There would be pretty significant limitations on what yeah. can be done. I just wanted to make sure that people didn't, you know, kind of understood the parameters of what we're talking about. I, you know, I only know of one other effort to give research animals a life after research. And I might be wrong. Some states have, have laws requiring or allowing dogs to be adopted under certain circumstances. Do you see this as an overall approach that could work for additional animals? Because after all, chimpanzees, as we started out saying, are remarkable special animals, but all of these animals matter. And presumably some of the research that was being done on chimpanzees is now being done on monkeys and it's, it hasn't put an end to research. It seems like there's something appealing here that other arguments haven't, haven't reached people or reached legislatures, not just that it's chimpanzees, but that it isn't fair to kill them after we've after we've harmed them. Do you see that as a as a way forward in in other areas? 
Yeah, I mean, I certainly think that there or that this could be used as a potential model. And I think the right, the circumstances would be different. For example, a monkey, you know, can't be adopted out as a pet in a private home because monkeys are not suitable and appropriate pets and they would not do well in that environment and the humans would not do well in that environment because very smart animals with opposable thumbs do not make good pets. But And it would be hard to to develop that many sanctuaries for all those monkeys. Sure. I mean, going um, the other direction, going the direction that... Right. I think, yeah, I mean, we are not. talking about a more limited class of, of animals, number of animals here. But I certainly think that just because it would be difficult, shouldn't foreclose the exploration and potential to provide retirement to animals. And, and and there are certainly animals who would be appropriate for adoption, like cats and dogs, if they're used in research. And and certainly HSUS has helped, Humane Society of the United States has helped place animals from breeding, for example, beagles who are being used at a facility that was breeding them for research purposes. HSUS has helped place those animals in homes. So I certainly think that yeah. there are opportunities that we should explore with respect to these other animals and that this could be a starting point to do so. Yeah, I agree. That argument seems to reach people when other arguments don't necessarily. It was really my pleasure, and I'm sure it's the same for all the people who are listening. Thanks so much, Margie. Thank you. I'm so glad you were able to join us on the Animal Law Podcast this month. We'll be back next month with a new show. Thank you so much to Margie for being our guest this month, and also to Vicki Beachler and Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven who are responsible for producing this podcast. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please consider leaving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or I guess there are other places you can leave reviews too. Any of them help find us new listeners. And of course, if you're able, please consider making a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for tuning in. 